0: Thank you for the presentation. Certainly great to hear what God's doing. If you would take your Bibles and turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Like Pastor Tim said, we're wrapping up a book study that was supposed to be done, uh, but didn't get done because I'm slow, I guess, or methodical. I like to think of it that way. But we're wrapping up the study of 2 Peter. This evening, before we uh, look into the Word, let's pray. God, you're good, and we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that your Word has gone out a long, long time ago. It's still preserved for us to study, but it's still very living and active as the Holy Spirit Uh, Illumines uh, us to see the truth in the Word. Lord God, I pray that uh, you might open our minds, free us from distractions, free us from uh, just other things that could interrupt the understanding, really, what you would have for us from your Word. We thank you for the privilege to be able to study it. God, we thank you for the fact that it can be studied in any language. It can be studied in Spanish, it can be studied in English. Where it's available all throughout the world, and we thank you for that. And we uh, take advantage of this privilege this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. So in 2 Peter, we actually have a theme that runs through the entire book, but uh, what I want to do here, so it's been a while since we've talked about 2 Peter, and I need to kind of catch you up on what this book is about. See, here at Grace Church, we like to study God's Word book by book. Or, as it were in the New Testament, letter by letter. This is a letter that Peter wrote to Christians. And so we're studying this letter, and this letter has a particular theme. Now, it's named after the person who wrote it. Peter, as you know. Peter, the one who has perhaps one of the largest Catholic churches named after him in Italy. That Peter, the disciple, the one who uh, was one of Jesus' most intimate disciples. Peter, who we know more about than any other disciple. This is him. And in fact, this is the last written work we have from Peter. And so as we look at 2 Peter, which follows after 1 Peter, we see a theme that shows up right at the beginning and right at the end. So just, if you would briefly, look at 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who've received the A faith of the same kind as ours. And that's actually going to be really significant to what we talk about tonight. By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Okay? So if you want, keep your finger there. Turn the page. At least in my Bible, you turn the page to chapter 3 and look at the very end. The last verse of the book, verse 18, it says, But grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a theme of knowledge tracing through this book. And it's more than just a knowledge like I have facts in my head or I have data that I've accumulated based on observation. No, this is knowledge that really is... An informed yet intimate relationship. So you've maybe heard it put this way. I know LeBron James he plays basketball, right? LeBron James does not know me. He doesn't know who I am. I know about him. I could learn his stats. I could memorize him. But he does not know me. Now, I know my wife, and my wife knows me. There's a difference, right? There's a difference in me knowing stats or knowing what a person looks like and actually having an informed and intimate relationship. That's the knowledge that Peter is talking about in his letter and all throughout the letter. In chapter 1, Peter writes of knowing God and how it impacts our values, our behavior, and even our assurance of salvation. Peter also talks about how knowing God isn't just looking up in the sky or waiting for a voice, but knowing God actually comes through his word, the Bible. In chapter 2, Peter spends time talking about how knowing God requires not only what is God, but what isn't of God false teachers and in fact chapter 2 is perhaps one of the most I would say severe chapters in the entire Bible when it comes to people who know about God but don't know God people who can rattle off the stats but don't have a knowledge of him in a way that he would say yes I know you it's very sobering. So chapter 2, talking about knowing what these false teachers are like, where they come from. And frankly, they come many times from within. Knowing that their characteristics are clear, even though their identity may not be. It's interesting that as Peter writes to this church, he writes about false teachers, but he doesn't name names. And that's kind of curious, because you'd think, hey, if there's false teachers that are coming from within, point the guys out, we'll get them out. Peter doesn't do that. Why? because he's preparing them for what will come and for what will come even after they've left this planet. In fact, we can use 2 Peter chapter 2 and be able to see some of those same characteristics playing out in false teachers in our day. And so Peter is writing so that they might know the characteristics, but then also know that their judgment is certain. That you can't play fast and loose with doctrine and lifestyle when it comes to claiming the name of God. These false teachers will be judged. But here's the kicker. Where is it? And these false teachers like to take the fact that they haven't seen it yet and use it to their advantage, which is where 2 Peter chapter 3 comes into play, because Peter says, yes, there are those who are coming who are saying, where is this judgment? You say it's coming. It sounds pretty serious, but it's not here. Peter is writing to them because knowing God is knowing what is to come, i.e., the judgment of the world or the day of the Lord. And he addresses three objections that are made against this judgment. This impending judgment. The first, ju- first objection was a behavioral objection. Frankly, people didn't want to stop the way that they were living. These false teachers really enjoyed the way that they were living. And so their objection to this concept of judgment was, frankly, just, I don't want to stop the way I'm living. I'm kind of enjoying it. It's going really well. So when you talk to me about this whole judgment thing, that kind of like cramps my style. Because that means I have to stop what I'm doing. I really don't want to stop what I'm doing. So is it more of a behavioral objection that Peter talks about. Peter also talks about a logical objection. And I kind of alluded to this earlier on. Where is this judgment? <laughs> We're going on just like our parents went on, just like our grandparents went on. Nothing's changed. And what Peter says is how quickly they forget God's judgment from the past. And it escapes their notice that God has judged before And he will judge again. And then really, there's that moral objection and how a good God would not be so tyrannical as to judge the earth with fire and destruction. Come on, God's good, God's love. In fact, that's a very common, probably the most common objection to this concept of God judging in our day. God would do that? I thought he's supposed to love everybody. And yet, God's judgment is sure whether it's palatable to me or not. God doesn't ask for his creature's opinions as to whether or not they find it agreeable. He is God. He is the creator. We are the creature. And so we pick up here, tracing this theme of knowledge, this informed, intimate relationship, into the end of chapter 3. Okay, Now, it gets happy in verse 13. It really does. There's this word at the beginning of verse 13, chapter 3. But, according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. You see, when God talks about judgment, he's not just simply talking about annihilation of everything and everyone. No, he's talking also about the fact that those who are righteous will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth. So we pick this up in verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. And so what we're going to be doing tonight, we're looking at verses 14 through 18. And in verses 14 through 18, there are four different commands. Four different commands here in verses 14 and 18. And really what I want to leave with you is that knowing God, this theme that we've traced, is growth in godliness. Okay? Very simple. Knowing God is growth in godliness. Okay? So in verse 14, we have a command. We have this knowledge of what God is like, what he says he will do, and then we now have our responsibility. And so Peter gives these four commands, or what we would call imperatives. The first one is, You need to work hard at your sanctification. You need to work hard at your sanctification. Where do we see that? Glad you asked. Verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent. So in the original language, this word for be diligent is really a word of exercise, of of effort that's being given. Be diligent to do what? to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. You see, becoming godly or growth in godliness is not simply a passive process. It's not something that we wait for God to somehow do and it just happens. Like we plop you in a church surface and by spiritual osmosis, like you just become godly. That's not the way it works. In fact, uh, Philippians chapter 2, if you keep your finger here, Philippians chapter 2 gives a good, I think, picture of what this looks like, working hard at sanctification. Philippians chapter 2, it's not too many pages back from where we were. Philippians chapter 2. In verse 12, so then my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, so he's talking to mature Christians here, okay, just as you always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like work, and it is. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13. For it is God who is at work at you. Work in you, I should say. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So it's not just the American experiment. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You know, work really, really hard. With grit and determination, you can get there, by golly. But nor is it let go and let God, Jesus, take the wheel. There is a combination where God produces a desire in the heart of his child, and so that his child will naturally work at becoming more like God, because he or she wants to. There's the desire. Now, back in 1 Peter, or Second Peter chapter three, work hard at what? Well, Second Peter three says, In verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Spotless and blameless. Be at peace. Why peace? Because of the tension that exists of the coming judgment. Remember, just prior to this, earlier in chapter 3, Peter gives all of these details of what God's judgment is going to be like. But the Christian would be markedly different. This judgment is going to come. But the Christian should work hard at being at peace. How does that happen? By reminding himself of the things that are to come. In fact, we see that. Since you look for these things. Since you look for what things? Well, verse 13. You look for the promise of the new heaven and the new earth. And when you're frustrated by the fact that all of these false teachers and people who are doubting the judgment and they seem to live the way they want and there you are as a Christian and you're looking at this and like, I've made all these sacrifices and I'm carrying my cross daily and they don't and their life is great. A very much like a Psalm 73 motif of looking at life. You're familiar with Psalm 73. It's like, I'm doing this all for nothing and they can live how they want and everything is fantastic. No, no. It's not. Be reminded, yes, the judgment's coming, but you are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth. And so truth settles. Be at peace. Endeavor. May the Holy Spirit give that peace as well as a fruit of his working. But be at peace also, spotless and blameless. Now, it's significant that he uses these terms, spotless and blameless. Why? because spotless and blameless looks a lot different than the false teachers. Okay? I don't even really have to turn my page. Well, I guess I do have to turn my page. But if you look in chapter 2, he's talking about these false teachers. And he's saying they're suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Okay, that phrase stains and blemishes. In chapter 3, what Peter did was just put the little letter A or alpha in front of stains and blemishes, which basically means not. So, for example, an atheist is someone who does not believe in God, whereas a theist believes in God, right? Well, here we have Peter saying... Be diligent to be found in him spotless and blameless, meaning without spot, without blame, unlike those false teachers who were living simply to fulfill their indulgences. You're not like that. And it's going to be tempting to become like that. And it's going to soil your character as a Christian if you are like that. But be diligent to not be like that. All right, command number one. Command number two, verse 15. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, it's really important that we look just a few verses back. Verse 9. Okay? In the midst of all this talk on judgment, what God's going to come, what He's going to do, and how the earth is going to be consumed by fire he says in verse 9 the lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness but he's patient towards you not wishing for any to perish but for all to come to repentance so that word patient in verse 9 is the same thing in verse 15 basically he's restating what he said the patience of the lord is salvation salvation for ourselves that God was patient with us, but salvation for others. Now, I spent a bit of the time talking about this in a sermon about four months ago, five months ago, so I don't expect you to remember it. So I'm just going to rehash this because this is so important, especially when we see a presentation about souls hearing the gospel in Argentina. And especially as we think of souls that we know that we would think God would never save them. Okay. Why? Because if God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance, then this quote-unquote slowness of God should bring about a feeling of appreciation from us. He spared us from the judgment we deserved and instead has given us salvation as we've repented, as we have repented. Okay? So this sense of appreciation. God is not slow concerning His judgment. Thank the Lord. If he was fast, where would we be? But get this. We're not the first generation on the planet. There were generations before us too. Aren't you glad that God was slow concerning his judgment for our ancestors? Do you know that you can go online? There's websites online where you can go up and look up your ancestors' criminal records. I almost paid 15 pounds. It was an English website. You couldn't even pay in I think it was euros actually. But you could look up your ancestry to see what crimes they've committed. And we kind of chuckle about that like, "Oh my word, what all the bad things that, you know, the people that, you know, came over here on the boat, what did they do?" You know, you put in your name and there is this research done. It's crazy. I don't want to know. But what I do know is this. I'm guessing that not every person in my family tree had a spotless record when it came to life. And I certainly am glad, and I appreciate the fact that verses like 2 Peter 3.9 are true. I'm certain some of my ancestors probably deserved to be smitten, and yet they weren't. Why did God allow for them to live? And live as long as they did so that they could reproduce. And not just reproduce, reproduce more of their ilk. I mean, haven't you ever thought that? Like, why would God allow? And yet, he does. Why? But yet, <laughs> here I am. I get to share the gospel with you. Thank the Lord for that. Not only appreciation, but Compassion. The slowness of God should bring about a feeling of compassion. Now, this is important because when Paul I'm sorry, when Peter says in verse 15, "Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation." what type of people would require the most patience? The false teachers, the people who were the most, perhaps profligate in their sin. And Peter's saying, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. In other words, look at them the way I looked at you. God may save them. And we have church history to testify of some awful, awful people from a human standpoint that came to Christ. We thank the Lord. And oh, by the way, we're part of that too. That it was God's compassion. It should bring about a feeling of compassion in us. The mocker. (laughs) The mocker in this passage is the primary beneficiary of God's patience. As he isn't judged. Perhaps God would change him and save him. That's what he did to Paul. Commandment number two. Regard the patience of the Lord of salvation. Commandment number three, verse 17 be on guard be on guard it says therefore you therefore beloved knowing this beforehand knowing what beforehand well let's look back at 16. back in 16 it talks about how people are distorting the scriptures in particular the words of paul now we're going to talk about that in just a little bit but they're distorting it they're untaught they're unstable And they do that to the rest of the scriptures and they do that to their own destruction in verse 17. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard. Be on guard from them, yes, but more so be on guard so that you don't fall into the same practice. Be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. So what Peter's doing, he's first of all attesting to their maturity, their steadfastness, but he's also recognizing the possibility of not falling away from salvation, but being caught up in that false doctrine, in that distortion of Scripture. He's echoing the warning of verse 16. Peter, again, was assuming that they were living correctly, He was talking to what we would consider to be mature believers. And if Peter's going to give an exhortation to anyone, why would he give it to the mature believers? And this is something I think worth settling on. Just for a moment. Remaining strong is not done by staying still. Okay? Spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is not something that is, quote-unquote, achieved. It's not uh, somehow acquired by staying still. No, it's an active process. We actually saw that earlier on. There is a necessary spiritual maintenance that is needed. Why? Because the reason, that these, the reason is that these believers were fellow workers with Peter. At the beginning of 1 Peter, we read this verse already. It says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle to Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith the same kind as ours. So Peter's not considering himself the spiritual bourgeois and having the plebes down here. You follow me and just hold on. No, he's wanting them to carry out, to grow, to be great commissioners just like he is yes he's an apostle no they're not but they still had the responsibility for spiritual maintenance and in this context even the most mature believer requires reminders and spiritual maintenance now when we think of the church many times this flies in the face of much of ministry say how so where those who have the greatest number of spiritual problems or those who have the least amount of spiritual maturity can often consume the most attention from leadership. Okay, so we've gone through this book, The Trellis and the Mind. We went through it. Uh, it's, it's part of our discipleship pathway. Okay, it's a helpful tool. It's a helpful tool. I want to read a section from this book that I, I feel is salient. There's a chapter in this book that talks about you know, equipping the saints to do the work of the ministry, and in particular, Studying the Bible so that others in turn can study the Bible with someone else. And the amount of time needed to invest in those who are spiritually mature. So, listen here. This concept of investing in the spiritually mature, maintenance the relationship with them as they maintenance the relationship with God, the author says this is counterintuitive, it goes against the grain. Our first instinct is to go straight to those who need the most help. And of course, as pastors, there will always be times when we need to leave the 99 and go after the 1. There will be pastoral emergencies and problems that we just have to deal with. But if we pour all our time into caring for those who need help, the stable Christians will stagnate and never be trained to minister to others. The non-Christians will stay unevangelized, and the rule of thumb will quickly, quickly emerge within the congregation. If you want the pastor's time and attention, get yourself a problem. <laughs> Ministry then becomes all about problems and counseling, and not about the gospel and growing in godliness. You see what Peter is doing here? He's warning the mature. He's affirming their maturity. Don't fall from your steadfastness, though. Be on guard. And then the fourth commandment, or fourth imperative that he gives. And we see this in verse 18. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This word grow is an imperative. We're told to grow. This growth is what we're to do while waiting to go home. You know, Peter does a test. So the reality at the end, to him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. That's a literal interpretation of the wording. The day of eternity. Okay, That future, new heaven, new earth. Grow, grow in grace, grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And I'll tell you what, this can sound very cliche from the standpoint of we just need to grow. Mm. What does that mean? And I go back to that definition of knowledge. That informed, intimate relationship with our Lord and God, with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that began at the point of salvation and will continue until we see him. Now, I skip the verse here. And that's intentional because I think It's a fair handling of this passage to see how Peter himself grew in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's look back to verse 15. "'Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of all these things.' In which are taught, are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. I want to bring our attention to what Peter says here in verse 15 about Paul. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, keep your finger here and go to Galatians chapter 2. Why are we doing this? We're doing this because I think this is a great example of seeing how Peter practiced what he preached. How Peter himself was growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we're in Galatians chapter 2. Okay? So Galatians, I don't have time to explain all of what's going on here in Galatians, but Paul is talking to a group of believers that were falling back into something called Judaism. But not not Jewishness, but basically adding the law to salvation. Okay? And what it did was it was disenfranchising, if I put it that way, Gentiles. And so the gospel had gone to Gentiles. Peter himself was a carrier. He He was a messenger of the gospel to the Gentiles. You can read of that in Acts 10. And yet, something was happening here. Paul was going to the Galatians and was talking to them about a tendency that he was seeing, a practice that needed to stop. Let's look at verse 1 in and, and Galatians 2. It says, Then after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along. And then he goes on to tell what's kind of happening. Verse, uh, 17, verse 7, I should say, For sake of time, I'm I'm skipping a few passages here. On the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, or the the, uh, Gentiles, just as Peter, who had been to the circumcised, now Peter himself was carrying the gospel to the Jews, for he who effectually worked in Peter in, in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. So the reason why I bring that up is because Paul is recognizing Peter as a preacher of the gospel. Okay, and as their ministries developed, Peter, though he carried the gospel to the Gentiles, really was used by God more or less to carry the gospel to the Jews, and then Paul was used by God to carry the gospel to the Gentiles. Okay, Are you okay so far? Doing the gospel work—that's great. Look at verse eleven. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision, basically fearing the Jews. How they were going to think about him eating with Gentiles, these Judaizers. And then in verse 14, Paul says, But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all... And he goes for the next six or seven verses to explain how he's crucified with Christ. That it's not the addition of the law. You say, why bring this up? And what does this have to do with growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior? So let's go back to 2 Peter. Look at how Peter describes Paul in verse 15. Just as our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now let's think about this instead of like words on a page, let's think about this like real life human beings. Peter, leading a group of Christians. Paul, formerly a persecutor of Christians, yet gloriously converted, now preaching the gospel. Comes to Peter, oh, by the way, the apostle who walked with Jesus, right? There was authority in the early church, Peter had it, and Paul says, You're wrong in front of people. How does Peter take that? Well, 2 Peter 3, sounds like they're getting along pretty good. In fact, it sounds like they're getting along glowingly. Just as our beloved brother Paul. We see terms of affection, beloved. We see terms of a family affiliation, brother. You see, Peter was confronted about a mistake and he repented. He didn't discredit the messenger. He didn't bring up all his dirty laundry. No. Peter shows love for Paul, his gratitude for Paul's ministry. and not only that, but here in Second Peter three, we have the one of the, we have one of the strongest and clearest statements that Paul's writings should be included in the scriptures. It's very, very clear. Verse 16, And also his letters, Paul's letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So these false teachers, they're distorting Paul's letters, but they're also distorting the rest of the scriptures. It sounds an awful lot like Paul's scriptures, or Paul's writings and the other scriptures are kind of working together. So we can have confidence that when we read Paul, we're reading God's Word. I mean, sometimes the Bible is so nice (laughs) that it just spells it out really clearly. And some of the theological controversies, did Paul really write this? this Well, this is really, I, I like this. I like the clarity of Peter when he says the other scriptures. But you know what else? And I think more significant to this. We see a man who could have caused great disruption and great distraction to the gospel ministry, instead repenting and turning and becoming one with another brother in Christ. I mean, think of what Peter could have done. And also with Barnabas. Because when you go back and you read Galatians, even Paul's partner Barnabas got caught up in this. And you know what? What does Peter do? I blew it. I blew it. In the book of Acts, we also see Peter's ministry at the beginning of Acts, very prominent, but as the book of Acts goes along, you have Paul's ministry crescendoing, and and then you don't even really notice Peter much at all throughout the rest of the book. What's up with that? And Peter doesn't have sour grapes. Paul is his beloved brother. In this example, we see the value of mutual accountability within the body of Christ. And in Peter, we see doctrinal and relational stability. Peter knew his doctrine. He was sharing it. But he also knew who he loved, who should be on guard, who they should be on guard against. That's growth in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In this example, we see a necessary correction of an incorrect practice, but we also see the byproduct of the correction, which is greater unity by both parties and a more biblical doctrine and practice. You know, as I read this, I think, okay, boy, what if I were in Peter's shoes? For those of us who are on the teacher end of things, we must be willing to hear the criticism at times when it comes And when we hear that criticism, when we genuinely look at the word, if we're in the wrong, we have to be able to admit that we're in the wrong. At which point, I would just want to talk from a relational standpoint. It's a Sunday night, right? From a relational standpoint, when I get behind this box, or maybe when you're in your classroom, if you're teaching class, or if you're discipling, often I find that what comes out of my mouth and what actually I mean to say are two entirely different things. Maybe not in opposites, but I kind of jokingly, we, we kind of joke amongst pastors, there's three sermons we preach, the one we plan to preach, the one we actually preach, and the one we wish we preached, okay? And James 3 says, hey, <laughs> this, is the, this is what you signed up for, James 3.1, let not every person desire to be teacher, because you're going to be evaluated more severely. So it's not like I'm I'm whining here. but Can I tell you that we now live in a generation where words are parsed more carefully than I can remember, at least in my lifetime, all 41 years. But now they can be transcribed. Now they can be videoed. Now they can be listened to over and over and over again. And I would just ask, as we all, as Christians, desire to grow in grace, that yes, when there's correction that's needed, that we manifest not just the knowledge of our Word and Savior, but also the grace of our Word and Savior. So that there is this mutual accountability. Because you have Leaders, and you have fellow saints that are growing themselves in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And the expectation of grace that you would have for yourself, I would just simply ask that you extend that to others. Peter's life, this is the story of his life. I mean, honestly, he cut off a guy's ear, he denied our Savior three times when he insisted he wasn't going to. He spoke up when he shouldn't speak up. Man, there's people, I'd wonder if I'd want him as my pastor with that track record, or a disciple for that matter. But here he is. The model of growing in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is the story of Peter's life. Growth with the eventual product of doctrinal relational stability. Let's pray. God, we admit that growth is painful and we also admit that growth can be interrupted when we're distracted by the things of the here and now. And so as we see the day of the Lord approaching and as we recognize that it's very easy to not be mindful of what is to come, the new heaven the new earth, not just all the perks that come with it, but Lord, the spiritual reality, that far supersedes anything on this that, that, that we could hold on to that's going to burn up. Lord God, may we grow through the Spirit, but Lord, may we also increase in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior by being, just simply being in His Word and being in prayer. That we might be attentive to the Word as it's preached. That we might be introspective and meditating upon what we've been taught. And Lord, that we might share it with others, with our brothers and sisters in Christ as we seek to build them up. But then with our unbelieving friends, relatives, neighbors. And thus, doing what you have put us here on the planet to do. All for your glory. We thank you for the example of Peter. We thank you for warts and all. Yet a man who is mightily used, who gave his life for you, who we will see in heaven one day. Thank you for his example and for his writing. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.